Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, if you would. Mark's Gospel. Chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. Hear now God's Word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Lessons are reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, how good it is to be in your house this day. Oh, Lord, it's so good to worship you and to to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to behold him and the beauty of who he is. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much as we come this day that the part of what you have ordained in your worship is that your people would hear from you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this day. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, Lord, that that the things that we hear, the word that would be implanted in our hearts would not be quickly snatched up by the birds of the air, by Satan. But Lord, that 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 seed that is planted would be watered and would grow and bear fruit to your glory. Oh Lord, I pray that more than anything, uh, that your word would honor your name. We thank you, O oh God, and pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, kids, have your parents ever set you down and, and ask you this? Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Okay, do you hear me? Now, this may be, they've done this one-on-one. You know, maybe some of you adults remember this from when you were kids, right? You know, maybe it was one-on-one, but maybe it was a family meeting or something, and your parents get you all together, and they're like, okay, kids, listen. Okay, I want you to hear what I'm going to say. Now, kids, when your parents do that, what do you do? Okay, well, maybe I actually ought to ask the parents, what do your kids do when you say that, okay? Okay. And I'm guessing, I mean, I wish this was a Sunday school class, because I would just ask you for your answers. I'd love to hear what you have to say. But I'm guessing that there's a whole range of responses that your kids have to that, okay? Uh, I'm guessing that some of your kids listen very carefully. And as parents, you can tell they're getting it, right? There's eye contact with you. They're, they're nodding their heads, yes, okay, I, I see what you're saying. And you just know that they're getting it. Of course, then there's other kids who listen a little bit and they're shaking their heads, but it's not because they're with you or they agree with what you're saying. 
They're more nodding their heads fast, like, oh yeah, I know what you're, I know what you're going to say. I've heard this before. I'm not really listening to you, but I, I just, yeah, let's just get on with it so that I can get back to playing and do what I want to do. And at that point, you just want to say to those kids, no, listen to me. Hear what I'm saying, not what you think I'm saying, okay? Just listen to me. And then, of course, there's the other kids you have that you could just swear they didn't even hear a word you said. You know, they're, they're just clueless, okay? If you ask them afterwards, they couldn't tell you anything, right? Well, I would say that we can sometimes be like that when we listen to God's Word, okay? Whether it's God's Word being preached, whether it's God's Word being taught in Sunday school, or, or maybe we're reading it in our personal worship time, or our family worship time. And sometimes with us, it can be like, you know, it soaks in. We hear it. You know, we, we, we hear it almost like we've heard it for the first time. And that word takes root in our hearts. And, and we're just hanging on every word that we read from God's word. But other times, we are the opposite. We just don't get it. Our minds are wandering and, and thinking about something else, right? You know, uh, as if, we've, if we're reading the word of God for a quiet time, we get to the end. And we just think, you know, I don't remember a word I even just read. Or, or, or as I preach, you leave, and if I ask you, what did I preach on today? You'd say, I'm not sure I could even tell you what the text was, right? There's just sometimes where our minds wander. But I would think that for most of us, the common temptation is, is that we listen, but with the idea that we've heard this before, and, and we know what it says. And so we listen, but maybe we don't always truly hear and take to heart what God's Word says. Well, I have to confess to you this week, brothers and sisters, that that last uh, point is probably how I approach this text uh, this week as I begin my study of Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. But as uh, the Lord just sort of slowed me down this week and enabled me to sort of listen more carefully to what the text says with the help of of the Holy Spirit. It's not that I received some great revelation that I'm going to share with you this morning or, or some amazing insight, but the Lord began to tweak what I thought about Jesus. It's just sort of a, a correcting, a, a new appreciation of who Jesus Christ is. And so I want us all to listen carefully as we look at what Mark reveals to us this morning about who Jesus is, okay? And let's begin by looking at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now I just want to make a few introductory comments here, okay? Just to help you to sort of see the flow of what Mark is, is doing here. You know, we're sort of moving from the prologue, which, or the introduction, kids, is another word for that, of verses 1 through 13 of Mark's gospel, where he sort of lays out those things that we need to know so as to understand the messianic ministry of Jesus. He sort of gives us the background that we need, I guess you could say, in one sense. But now he, he begins a new section, and this section actually goes from chapter... Or, chapter 1, verse 14, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And, and what we're seeing today is we're really moving from that prologue to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's the beginning of his ministry in Galilee 
where he's answering that question, who is Jesus? Remember I said as we go through the book of Mark, there's three questions that should constantly be nagging us as we listen. Who is Jesus? And, and why did he come? And how am I supposed to live or how am I supposed to respond because of these things? And so what we see here is, is that Jesus is beginning his ministry in Galilee. Now, as, as we've said before, Mark's gospel is not written in chronological order, right? And so he puts the facts together in such a way as to paint a theological picture of who Jesus is, why he came, and how we are to respond to who he is. And so it's not necessarily written in order. Uh, what you see in Mark is Jesus begins his ministry up north in Galilee and sort of in that whole area. And then about the middle of the book or so, then Jesus begins to make his way down to Jerusalem where he uh, finishes ministry and particularly as he's heading to the cross. And that's why we called this series The King's Cross because here's a king who is heading to the cross. And so that's sort of how Mark sort of lays it out. But the reality is, if you look at the other gospel writers, you see that Jesus' ministry really looked more like a back and forth. That Jesus ministered in Jerusalem, he ministered in Galilee, you know, he ministered in Jerusalem, you know, he was sort of all over the place. So it wasn't quite that way. But this morning we see Jesus came to the people of his day, preaching a message of hope and glad tidings. And that's what I want us to look at, first of all, this morning, as the authority of Jesus preaching. The authority of Jesus preaching the astonishing authority of Jesus in his preaching, okay? That word preach means to proclaim. It's, it's, it means the idea of a herald. Kids, do you remember Robin Hood? You know, in sort of the days of Robin Hood, they would have a herald, right? Someone who would say, hear ye, hear ye. And then they would have some big news from the king or something like that, right? You know, that they just wanted everybody to hear. Well, that's what Jesus was. Jesus was... This herald, it says in verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the, good, the gospel of God. Jesus comes as God's herald to proclaim God's good news. Because that's what gospel means. It means good news. But Jesus isn't just preaching any good news. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what we see in these verses. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the content of the gospel is the coming of the kingdom of God, or the rule of God in the hearts of his people. If there's any motif that runs through the Old Testament and is fulfilled perfectly in the New Testament, it is a central idea of the kingdom of God. Now, you know, there's something here for us to, to, to catch on to if you've not picked up yet. As Jesus is evangelizing, as Jesus is sharing the good news, it's interesting that it revolves around the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you picked this up or not, but when Ryan was reading from the book of Acts, you know, the apostles were doing the same. They were preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, we oftentimes, when we think of sharing the gospel, we think of sharing the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross, okay? There's nothing wrong with that, okay? That's perfectly legit, if you want to say, to, to talk about how Christ died on the cross because our problem is our sin, and if we don't talk about Christ dying on the cross, we don't understand what God's solution is. But the good news, in some sense, is even bigger than that. That it's talking about the rule of God 
over our hearts. And you have people today who want to receive Jesus as Savior, but they don't really care to have Him as Lord. And that's because sometimes maybe only they've heard of the cross, but they've really not been confronted with the kingdom of God that's come. So anyway, let's talk about the kingdom of God. What do we mean when we speak of the kingdom of God? I mean, hasn't the kingdom of God always existed? So when you say the kingdom of God has come, that doesn't always make sense. I mean, hasn't God been the Lord God omnipotent who reigns from all eternity? And the the brief answer is, well, yeah, of course. I mean, if you look at our call to worship this morning, if you were listening carefully, you heard that the psalmist spoke of God's kingdom and his throne in heaven, his mighty rule. But when the Old Testament spoke of the coming kingdom of God, it refers to God, who is the king of the universe, coming personally to establish his kingdom in this world. It was God intervening in history. It was God coming to earth to establish his kingdom. It speaks of a king who would reign like David and defeat all God's enemies. It would be a king who is like King Solomon who would usher in a time of prosperity and peace. And so Jesus came preaching a message of hope to a people trapped in despair. And it's interesting that Jesus went to them and he brought the good news. He didn't wait for them to come to Jerusalem. He didn't set up a, you know, a tent or something and say, hey, you want to hear the good news? Come to me. He went to them. And, and Jesus came preaching a message of hope to a people trapped in despair. Their religion had ceased to have power. Their leaders, their religious leaders were corrupt and self-serving, as we've seen in Sunday school. The religious leaders were much more concerned about whether the people were following them and listening to them than whether they heard the word of God. Their nation had long since lost its glory. They were a people trapped in lives of hopelessness and desperation. They were hungry for a message of hope. Now, does that sound like anything like our country? You see, Israel was looking forward to a day when God's rule would be manifest here on earth in the coming of His anointed one. You know, John, who announced the coming kingdom, had now been put in prison, and now we see Jesus picking up that mantle, following in His footsteps, and He comes into Galilee preaching the good news of God, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what does that mean? There, there's, a, there's a lot packed in these verses, so hang with me as I sort of look at these terms that, that Mark uses. The time is fulfilled. Well, there's two basic words in the Greek language that's translated time, okay? There's chronos, which is would sort of like come from our word uh, uh, chronicle, which is a, a record, it's a, it's a history of something. And so chronos refers to the moment-by-moment passing of time. It's just ordinary time. It's the time that's measured on your watch, right? That's chronos. But there's also another word, uh, um, kairos, which means more time, season. It's a special word uh, for time that refers to a particular moment in time that is so important that it defines everything that comes after it. Now, in English, we don't use the word time in that way, so we don't really have an equivalent to that. But the closest, maybe, that we have is the idea of historical 
and historic. Okay? A historical event is something that happens in time. It's a chronological event. Okay? Me preaching this morning at Kirk of the Plains is historical. But I can guarantee you it's not historic. Okay? Uh, people will not define everything from this moment on in light of the sermon that I'm preaching this morning. That would be so awesome if it did happen, but I can guarantee you it's not going to happen, okay? So for, so for something to be historic, it has to be so important that it, that it shapes history. Um, and of course, the most chirotic event in the history uh, of, of human history is the birth of Jesus. Of, of all history... It is defined by that one moment. I mean, think about it. We even measure time B.C. and A.D. Christ's birth is the dividing line of history in the Western world. And this is what Mark has in view in our text about the kingdom of God. It is that kind of event that the kingdom of God is. When Jesus comes preaching about the kingdom of God, he declares that the kairos is fulfilled. Now, the word that Mark uses for fulfilled is pleroma, okay? Which means superfulness, okay? Kids, if your parents ask you to bring them a glass of water, I am guessing that you fill that cup up maybe three-fourths the way full. Maybe half full, I don't know. But you usually leave a little bit of room at the top. And you know why we do that, right? Because if you fill that cup clear up to the top, right and you tried to take that to your parents you'd spill half of it on the way to getting to your parents and if you didn't if you were actually able to give it to them and you handed it to them you would probably spill it all over them because the cup was so full okay so you only fill the cup just a partial way well that is not pleroma okay when you fill something in the sense of pleroma it's spilling it out over the top if you were going to fill a cup if your parents said give me a pleroma cup Okay, you would have water just like gushing over the, the top of the cup. Okay, and, and what Jesus is saying is when he preaches the good news, it, it is, uh, the good news is that the kairos and the pleroma have come together. That the God who stands over time and space has so prepared history for this moment that the moment has now occurred. The time for the coming kingdom of God is right now. When God has entered time and space and intervenes into history, that is happening now. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, that term at hand means it's near, it's right now. But, but not uh, near simply temporally, but also physically at hand. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is right here standing before you. The king of the kingdom is in your midst. The long-awaited Messiah is here. The king has come. Now, as you listen to that, you might think, wow, what's su such good news? Especially for these Israelites, as they've been waiting for the coming Messiah, they would have been all ecstatic. But if you stop and think about, about it, Jesus is really bringing a crisis into the life of every Jew in Israel. Because those who receive him receive eternal life, but those who do not pass into the judgment of God. 
But that's not just the crisis for the Jews of that day. That is what every person in the world today also experiences as we go and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you cannot hear the gospel and walk away indifferent. When you receive the gospel, it is the greatest moment of your life. And when you do not receive the gospel, it is the greatest judgment upon you. The gospel is sort of that two-edged sword. And I know sometimes, brothers and sisters, we are timid to share the gospel because of that reality. Because we know if those who do not listen do not receive, then it only brings judgment upon them. And so Jesus calls his hearers to repent and to believe. Now, these are two things that are absolutely necessary to receive Jesus, is repentance and belief. The coming of Christ requires repentance and the faith by all who will hear him. And I love what Matthew Henry says about this text. Matthew Henry says, by repentance, remember kids? All right, kids, remember what I talked about last week, repentance? If this is sin, and we're living our lives looking at sin and loving sin and wanting sin, repentance is that action of turning our back on sin, and here is God, and we're following after God, and we set our hearts and our love upon God, right? There's that turning around, that repentance, okay? And Matthew Henry says, by repentance, we must lament and forsake our sin. We must weep over our sin as we repent. And by faith, we must receive the forgiveness of those sins. Okay, so you need both those sides. You need that sense of turning your back upon that sin, lamenting, forsaking that sin, seeing our sin, understanding that there is nothing in me that would warrant God loving me. There's just an emptiness. There's a hostility towards God. And so I lament over that. I say, oh God, I am that man who has not washed the inside of the cup or the plate. I am filthy. As a matter of fact, it's like having last night's chili and I ate the chili and I left the plate on the counter, didn't put any water on it, and it's hard and it's crusty and it's nasty and it's gross. As a matter of fact, actually I did that two weeks ago. So there's green mold on this. That's what I'm like. That's why repentance is necessary. We look so good on Sunday morning. But that's our heart condition without Christ. And so we need that repentance. By repentance, we must give glory to our Creator whom we have offended. By faith, we must give glory to our Redeemer who came to save us from our sins. You see, both of these things have to go together. You know, in the theological world, guys, in theology, whenever you talk about faith and repentance, they always go together. They're actually like two sides of the same coin. You can't get rid of repentance without affecting faith and vice versa. You know, so no more than you can like cut off one side of a coin and have only one side instead of two. They both have to be there for that to be a complete coin. And we must not think either that reforming our lives will save us without trusting in the righteousness and the grace of Christ. I can't just try to be better. I can't just try to do better. Okay, I have to place my hope and my faith and my trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In the same way that trusting in Christ will save us, uh, we can't just trust that he will save us without the reformation of our hearts and our lives. The other side of it is, is that we have to know that when he comes in and he changes us, 
He doesn't just save us, like now I have a ticket into heaven, but He actually will reform us, and He will change our hearts and our lives, and He will make us different. He will cause us to be like Jesus Christ. He will cause us to love more. We will exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Now, the fruit may grow slowly at times, and there's other times it may have a growth spurt, but it's still growing nonetheless. Kids, have you ever done that? You go out and you plant a garden, you're right, and there's a seed, and, and you go out every day and you look to see if you can see that little plant growing up in the ground, right? And when you do, what do you do? You go in and you tell everybody in the family, hey, guess what? The beans are coming up. I saw a little bean, you know, or whatever it is that you planted. And you're all excited because it grows. And it's the same way with the work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts that there's always that growth, no matter how small that might be. Now, think about this, brothers and sisters, in light of so much of what we call evangelism today. You know, there is a sense in which even Christians understand that to share the gospel, it is good news, but it is also bad news and it is judgment for those that do not receive it. And so uh, I think sometimes in an effort to... That's what Christ says. When Jesus calls us, he bids us to come and to die. You see, unlike modern evangelicalism, you know, where we want a choice about our religion, right? We want to be able to choose the right church and we want this and we want that. You know, it has to have the right programs. You know, we're just used to all these choices and we just want to find just the one that fits the closest to what our desires are. And, you know, so, you know, we, we sort of like the idea of, you know, go to a restaurant and say, you know, I want the beef. I don't want, well, I don't want the shrimp. I don't really like seafood, so I really want beef instead of shrimp. We like that. We sort of carry that over into everything in our lives, even, even into church and even in our relationship with, with God. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that you can't do that with Jesus. You can't say to Jesus, I want you to save me so I'll go to heaven, but I don't be master and Lord of my life. I don't want you to tell me what to do with my life. Oh, okay, Jesus, I, I don't mind giving you this part of my life, but I don't really want to give you all of it. No, that's not, that's not how it works. Christ comes with the force of a Category 5 tornado that sweeps away everything in his path. And he says, I want it all. I want it all because he is the Lord of all. I love the way Cranfield in his commentary put it. As Jesus is coming and he's speaking to these men and calling them to follow him. He says, Jesus' word lays hold on men's lives and asserts his right to their wholehearted and total allegiance. A right that takes priority even over kinship. And that's what happened to Simon and Andrew and James and John. The disciples immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. Or they left their father and they followed Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us not miss the weight of the reality of this statement. Jesus calls and they leave everything to follow him. And that's what's happening this morning. That Jesus is calling you to follow him. Now you may say, Pastor Rick, I've already come to faith in Christ. I already know the Lord Jesus Christ. I have walked with him throughout these years. And that's true. I'm not doubting that. I'm not 
questioning your profession of faith or your Christian life. But brothers and sisters, is it not true that even as Christians, as we're walking the Christian life, we can, we can oftentimes sort of just slide. We can oftentimes just add to our lives certain idols that we come to set our affections upon. That we come and we, we say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but... And we give these, these qualifications. And we find ourselves uh, really not following him wholeheartedly. Well, see, Mark in his gospel not only shows us who Jesus is, but also what it means to follow him. And what we see is that following Christ comes at a cost. It requires us to turn our backs on every other earthly commitment. To follow Jesus means to have him as our first love. It is to walk by faith following Him. It is to repent of every sin and inclination to put things and people ahead of Him. I can remember when Robbie and I were in college, we got engaged, and I just love this woman. I'll tell you what. I love spending time with her, and it was just such a joy, and you know, our relationship was so strong. And, you know, we just, we just enjoyed that time of engagement. But the one thing that we soon realized is that many of our friends were pulling back from us. Um, we, and we couldn't understand why. Relationally, they, they just were distant. And so we went to one of our professors. He was actually, we took a lot of classes on marriage and family. And he was our main professor. He was actually a biblical counselor. And we went to him and we said, hey, we don't understand what's going on. Can you give us any advice? And so he suggested that our commitment to each other was so strong and so obvious to our friends that they probably wondered if there was a place for them in our lives. And so he suggested that we communicate that to them, that yes, we still want to be friends with you. Yes, we love each other and that commitment is strong, but we want to be friends with you. But brothers and sisters, that's sort of what the commitment to Christ is like. That that commitment to Christ is so strong. We love Him so much. We want to spend time with Him so much. There is such a bond between Christ and us that people wonder if there's room for anything else in our lives. And of course, there is room for other commitments, but only, and hear this, hear this, but only as it flows from our relationship with Jesus. Our priorities can never take place over Jesus Christ. You know, your work, you work hard for your boss, not because you're a hard worker, but because Jesus comes first. And so because of your love for the Lord, your work becomes you are doing that for the Lord. You love your wife so much, but only because she comes second to Jesus. If you put your wife first in your life, or you put your husband first in your life, or you put your kids first in your life, or you put anything else first in your life, that love will never be so strong as if you put first Jesus in your life. And as you love Jesus first, then your love for that other thing will be appropriately strong and healthy. But when we turn it around, it never works out. Now, I know that you're not called to be an apostle or a pastor or maybe even a foreign missionary, but you are called to serve Christ, and Christ must come before everything else, even our vocation. That's what we see with, with Peter and Andrew. They left their fishing occupation 
to go and to follow Jesus. Uh, it is even before our families. You know, James and John, they left their father with the servants and they went on. I, I'm surprised and, and amazed at, at, at you know, I, I don't know what we've done in the Reformed faith, but it's like sometimes families can get this uh, uh, mistaken idea that family has to come first even before Christ and His church. And, and, and so... Um, what happens is, is you, you find sort of an imbalance in their life. But as we keep Christ first, we'll keep that balance between family and church just right. Turn with me, if you would, to, to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Luke nine fifty-seven. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is to Jesus... I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus was saying, If, if you want to come after me, uh, you're going to have to walk away from the world and all of its comforts. You know, no more comfy home. Uh, I don't have a place even to lay my head. And then he goes on, he goes to another, he said, Follow me, but he said, Lord... Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You see, those words of Jesus sort of remind me of a, of a quote from C.S. Lewis where he said this, he goes, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. You see, Christ has a higher priority for us, a wholehearted commitment to the king and his kingdom. All other commitments, whether it be family or work, uh, our self, whatever it might be, has to be laid aside. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, I, I want us to consider this. Have you come to see Jesus Christ as the blazing center of your life? Is he the bright morning star, the fairest amongst 10,000? Is he the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom you bow your knee, your thoughts and your desires, your plans, your hopes, even your dreams? Are all these things laid at the feet of Jesus? Or... Is Christ your supersized genie in a lamp here to do your bidding? You know, you just rub the lamp, you just get on your knees and you pray. And, and is he here to do what you want him to do for you? Is he here to help you when you need just a little bit of help? Well, that's not who Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord of the universe. He is challenging you and your right to be what you want to be. And do what you want to do and go where you want to go. He says to us this morning, brothers and sisters, follow me. And so what's your answer this morning? Will you follow him? Let's bow our heads this morning and reflect upon this.
Lord, we thank you so much that we could hear your word this morning. And we pray, God, that we really would hear your word. Let us not be like the kid who goes, yeah, 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 I know what you're saying, I know what you're saying. But we're really not getting it. Lord, please, let, let, let the truth, the, the claim that you have upon our lives address and confront the idols of our hearts. The commitments that we have, Lord, even commitments you have given to us that we have let get out of whack and we have placed those things before you. Lord, the sloppiness maybe by which we have dealt with sin. And instead of putting it to death, we've coddled it more than we ought to. Oh, King Jesus, we thank you that you come with authority today to proclaim the freedom that we have in you as we respond in repentance and faith. And help us to respond today in such a way to you, Lord, that we might know you, that we might walk with you, that we might delight, oh God, in who you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the power of the gospel at work in us through your Holy Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen.